So have you ever heard somebody make a claim that turned out to be false? Does that happen to anybody here? When I became a, a believer, when I was first became a, a Christian, there was a young man who gave the most amazing and powerful testimony of how he had been a high priest of Satanism and God saved him. He sold books. He toured the country. He sold recordings. I actually had a couple of, I don't know if you know what these things are, cassettes <laughs> of his testimony. People would pass them around. Thousands of people Probably hundreds of thousands of dollars were made by this person. All of us were deceived because it turned out that he was a fake and a liar. And of course, at that point, he lost pretty much every, every ounce of credibility he ever had, and I don't even hear of him anymore. I won't mention his name, but and probably a lot of you wouldn't even have heard of it now because it's been a while. So I want to Go further, and I want to ask, did Christmas happen in history? Or is it the great Christian mythology that we invoke to comfort our hearts because of our guilt and because of death? Did Christmas actually happen in history? When I grew up, I became convinced that the Bible mostly contained mythical stories, something along the line of Aesop's fables, if you've ever heard of them. And there are still plenty of people who believe that today, sad to say. But you know, it really matters what you believe about this. You know, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, how will things turn out for you when you die if the Bible stories are mythical? That's why I say it really matters. It's important. Or maybe some of you may actually hesitate to believe because you're not sure about Jesus and the Bible. So I'd like to look at the way today, I'd like to look at the way the Holy Spirit has inspired the Gospel of Luke regarding the coming of Jesus. That's what I'd like to do, put this before you. So let's start out by looking at what I would call not just the Gospel of Luke, but Luke's history of the Savior of the world. Each of the Gospels has a view of Jesus peculiar to Matthew, to Mark, Luke, and John. Luke, he presents Jesus as the compassionate Savior of the world. So another title for Luke could be The History of the Savior of the World. And I want you to see how he starts out his gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken or have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So this is how Luke, the historian and the physician, introduces his history 
of the Savior of the world. It's very interesting because this is very typical of Greek historians in that time period. The Greek historian said that history without eyewitness corroboration is almost worthless. History ought to have eyewitness corroboration. And it would be even better if the historian was an eyewitness himself. And you know, in the the Gospel of Luke, it's followed up by the book of Acts. Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. And every once in a while, if you're reading in Acts, you'll find he, he turns to the plural pronoun we and us because he was there when things happened. He was a traveler, a companion with the Apostle Paul. But what you'll find here, he is saying that others have taught us what Jesus said and did that were there, and I decided for your sake, and he names this man Theophilus, and we really don't know who Theophilus was, but I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to gather up eyewitness testimony so that you can be sure that what you believe is rock-solid history and true. That's what he's saying there. Look at it again sometime when you get a chance. So, these first two chapters, chapters 1 and 2, could be called the witnesses to the birth and pedigree of the Messiah. By pedigree, I mean the authenticity of this child as the promised Messiah his fulfillment of the prophecies and promises of Scripture. At that time, remember, there was no New Testament. It was being written. For them, Scripture was Old Testament, what we call Old Testament. So these two chapters are the witnesses to the birth and pedigree of the Messiah, the authenticity of this particular child, this newborn child, to be the promised Messiah. It shows the fulfillment of the prophecies and promises of Scripture, and of course, most importantly, his origin and lineage before Israel and within Israel. That's what you have here in these first two chapters. We are going to take a sample of them today, this morning. And I want to look first at the first witness that that Luke brings into the court to give evidence, and that's that's an angel named Gabriel. An angel named Gabriel. So take a look at verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So both of them were descended from the priests. And that priest was only supposed to marry another descendant of the priests. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. That's a nice way of saying there's no way these two are ever going to have a child now. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. This is a great privilege. There were so many priests that they had to divide the time that they spent in the temple. So every once in a while, you get called upon if you were chosen by lot, and he was chosen. Uh, Reminds me, there are no such things as coincidences for believers. He was chosen because God was making an appointment with him. So verse 10, 
And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. This is a, this is a, a time of worship for God's people at the temple. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And here's one of the biggest understatements in the whole, in the whole world. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. In other words, he was terrified. <laughs> this has never happened to me before. What's going on here? But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. Even in his old age, he's been praying, oh, Lord. Wouldn't you please give us a child? He's still praying. Zach, the angel says, God's heard that prayer, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, because he's got a big job ahead of him. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And that's a fulfillment of a prophecy that Elijah would come before Christ. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's his job. Then Zechariah said to the angel, without much faith here, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is. I love this man, really love this wife. He doesn't say, she's an old woman. He doesn't say that. He says, and my wife is well advanced in years. See the tenderness of this good and godly man? I praise the Lord for those kinds of examples for us men who are not so nice to our wives maybe on occasion. Verse 19, and the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Now, he's, not, he's not being nice here to Zacharias. He's rebuking him. I was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. Why aren't you rejoicing instead of saying, <laughs> but behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. So if you won't believe, you won't have anything to say until what I said is going to happen happens. Then I'll open your mouth and then you'll be able to tell everybody about it. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple, but when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. It's a really big deal in those days to go without a child. All right, so the pregnancy of Elizabeth, uh, Zacharias' wife, and John the Baptist's mother, and then the birth of John the Baptist prove the witness of Gabriel and Zacharias. Gabriel to Zacharias, and a little bit later on, when John the Baptist has been born, it comes time to name him. Everybody thinks that he should be named because most people would name their son after somebody in the family. And Zacharias is saying, waving them off, no, 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 no. And they give him a tablet, and he, he writes the name John on it. And then his mouth is open, and he starts giving God praise. So, so it's very clear that, that this was true, and there's corroboration of it right there within the story. But I want to add something to you. 
outside of the Bible, a credible and dependable Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, outside of the Bible and not in support of the Bible or even in support of Jesus or Christianity, Josephus, the Jewish historian, corroborates the existence and ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus. It's an external biblical witness, a non-biblical witness to the reality of Luke and Matthew and Mark and John. Interesting. Well, let's look at the second same witness, but this time to Mary. Verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus is guardian father is not his actual biological father is a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary and having come in the angel said to her rejoice highly favored one the Lord is with you blessed are you among women for after all how many women could have been chosen to give birth to the Messiah of God the son of God amazing But when she saw him, like Zacharias, she was troubled at his saying, and consider what manner of greeting this was. Another understatement. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Fulfillment of prophecy again. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Unlike all other kings who die, Jesus died but rose again, and is now at the right hand of God, and his kingdom will never end. And if you're in that kingdom, you will never die. Because he never lets any of his subjects die. You say, well, I've seen Christians die. Exactly. But to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And then there's the great and glorious resurrection to come when he returns. Well, let's look at this some more. Verse 20, 34. Then Mary said to the angel, how, angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? Now, here the Bible interjects something or injects something that I don't know if you've ever taken notice of it. This is the same question Zacharias asks. Zacharias gets rebuked and Mary gets praised. Well, you know, the only one who knows the heart is God. So he knew in the heart of Zacharias, he was saying, this can't happen. And he knew in Mary's heart, it was, I don't understand how this is going to happen, but if you say so. In other words, Mary had faith and Zacharias unbelief at that time. See, the Bible is a, is a great book, and it's masterfully crafted as a, as a work of literature. And, and it forces you to stop and think and say, what's going on here? And to get you to look at it and study it so that you know it, so that when the time comes for you to speak up and talk to somebody, you have it in your heart and in your head. And when the time comes for you to suffer and maybe even die, you've learned the word of God and you've trusted in Jesus and you know it's the word of God and you're ready for whatever trials and tribulations may come. So study the word, come and hear the word, get into the word, and let it be your daily companion as you you walk with the Lord. Well, so the angel then says in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. In other words, she's simply asking, 
I don't see how this can happen because I don't know a man. Well, let me tell you how it's going to happen, he says. In, in very mysterious words, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Information of a sort that leaves us with understanding but even greater wonder and mystery. And you might have to come to the place and say, well, I don't really, only God can do this. And you know what? If there's not mystery in your faith, you don't have God. If you can understand everything about God, then you made that God up. But the God that is, is a mind-blowing God, as well as a mind-expanding God. And our God also is a heart-expanding God. He expands our hearts with love that we ourselves cannot have. By coming and loving us and filling us with love so that we can start to love other people in wonderful ways that we sometimes surprise ourselves and say, wow, I didn't know God would give me that kind of love in that time, in that situation with that person. So that's the explanation the angel gives. Verse 36. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren, for with God nothing will be impossible. Now notice, John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus, the Messiah. All right? Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That's a great answer for you and for me to give God whenever he calls us to go through a really tough thing. All right, Lord, let it be, me. Let it be to me according to your word. Let me trust you as I go through this. So that's Gabriel's witness to Mary. Third, Elizabeth's witness to Mary. Verse 39. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember what Gabriel said to, John, to Zacharias? Your son will be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. When the bearer of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, was God and man, when Mary entered into that room, not only did Elizabeth have a supernatural awareness, but the babe in her womb, which the angel said earlier. Isn't that great? Awesome. God, you are awesome. And so she spoke out with a loud voice. And what this means is she is speaking prophetically. She is speaking as a prophetess. And she says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. The babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. There it is. Now, I think all of this 
can be subsumed or maybe overarched by calling it God's testimony to you and to me about Jesus. Because who orchestrated all of this? They couldn't do that. Well, this was all made up. Well, stop a minute. Let me think. I know anyone can make up such stories and anyone can say they've seen an angel or an angel visited me. And you might want to back off a little bit. Are you okay? But listen, it's quite impossible to produce two very unusual, if not to say miraculous, births. Let me add something to that. And we have yet to mention the timing of these births. Who could arrange these births being so close together that these events can happen the way they've happened? See, there's a mystery. There's something going on here that's above and beyond your understanding and my understanding. This is happening. And by the way, if you think this was made up by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John or any other disciples, you haven't read this, these books. Because the daffiest group of men that ever walked the earth were these men that were with Jesus. I mean, they would squabble and fight, and Jesus would tell them something, and they couldn't get it. And at the end, he kept telling them, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be, I'm going to be crucified. On the third day, I'm going to rise again. Over and over and over again. You read it. You look for that. I, for years, I didn't see how many times Jesus said that in the Gospels, telling them what was going to happen. What happened when Jesus was taken away from them? What did they do? Well, let's go down to the tomb and wait there for the resurrection. They all scattered and fled in fear and trepidation. Jesus actually had to go back and get, to, get the head disciple. He had to go back and get Peter, because Peter had thrown it all in and went back to fishing. Brothers and sisters, this is real. This is real. And you know what happens when he comes into your life? You know, it's, it's amazing how he changes your life when that happens. So here again, you see, I just want to pause and point some of those things out to us. And then there's some other testimonies, which I really don't have time to go into today. I think we might do one or two of them a little bit later on. But there's the, what I call the Simeon surprise. You read that in, in chapter 2. They bring Jesus in to dedicate him to the temple because the law of Moses required that the infants had to be brought to the temple. For the male infant, there was circumcision. A gift had to be given and so on and so forth to consecrate the child. And while they're in the temple, there's a man named Simeon whom God said, you're going to see my salvation. And he sees Joseph and Mary bring Jesus in. He says, now I can die. And then Anna, a prophetess who lost her husband at a very young age, and she spent all her time around the temple praying and fasting and, and, uh, and speaking the words of God to people, she came over and saw Jesus as well and verified this is, this is the one. So take a look at that when you get a chance in, in chapter 2. Like I say, I'm not going to be able to take the time to go into those at any length. So to finish up today, <clears throat> I want to say that Luke, as a diligent historian, interviewed the eyewitnesses for his history of the Savior of the world. Let me mention something else here, which I found very uh, surprising and, and very exciting to me. Luke, Luke was a Greek. His Greek is of an excellent quality. 
uh, as somebody who wrote in a very um, educated style of the Greek language. Um, each writer in the Bible has their own distinctive way of handling language, just like you and I would. And um, when, you, when you read Luke, Luke and Acts, you know it's by the same author because of how they construct their sentences and the words and the vocabulary they use, the way they put things, uh, or the way he does. And when you look at the first two chapters here of Luke, scholars have noticed that the style of the Greek is different from the other style of his Greek writing in the rest of the gospel and in Acts. And they have discovered that the first couple of chapters of Luke have a, an Aramaic flavor, an Aramaic influence. You say, oh, what's that all about? What did Zacharias and Elizabeth speak? Aramaic. What did Mary speak? Aramaic. That was their language in Palestine. That's what the priests would speak around the temple and so on. Aramaic. So Luke went to the eyewitnesses and he interviewed the eyewitnesses to get this history for you and for me. And so it actually reflects their language, their style of speech, their Aramaic. It's right here. And there's even scholars who don't believe the Bible who have to admit that because it's right there and it's conclusive. So Luke is a diligent historian. He's a Greek, and he believes what the historiography of the Greeks. Now, what does that mean, historiography? Is what a historian believes about what is good history and bad history. And this is, this is state-of-the-art history for Greeks that we have right here. Now, I want to add something else to that. The whole Bible is God's witness to the whole world about who he is, who Jesus is, and what life and the world is all about. The whole Bible is God's witness to the whole world. Because when you read the Bible, you discover who God is and what is he like. Anybody else who tells you who God is and what he's like, that's just an opinion. But the Bible is God telling us who he is and what he is like. It also tells us where the world came from and where all of us came from. And it also tells us why God made us, why we're here, what life is all about, and also what to expect for the history of the world and for your own personal history, your destination. And it also tells us what went wrong with the world. There's something wrong with the world. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with you. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. Well, why is that? The Bible tells us that man decided early on to go his own way and not walk in harmony and fellowship with God. And then the Bible tells us it's God's witness to not only what went wrong, but God's plan to make the wrong right. And that comes in a person named Jesus Christ. Remember, in the book of Revelation, when he comes back, he says, Behold, I make all things new. Now, he's already begun with us. When you're born again, you become a new person. In an old body, yeah, we know this all too well. But when we die, we get rid of this old body, and when Christ returns, he gives us the new one and we'll be resurrected and we'll receive a glorified body 
that's no longer not the way they're supposed to be, but the way they are supposed to be, and that means immortal, no longer mortal. So the one verse that says it all, as you know, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The big question is this. Will you accept God's testimony to his son? Now, what I'm doing, that's testimony. As we live our lives for Jesus, that's testimony. But the most important one is this testimony and also the Holy Spirit's testimony when he witnesses with our spirits that we are the children of God. And when you turn to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit says, that's right. This is where I have led you. Believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that he died for you on the cross and he rose again to promise you everlasting life. See, we're not just saying these as human beings, but right now, Pastor Mark started it off by saying, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, what? I am there in the midst. So the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts and in our lives. Um, this faith that we have is truly a supernatural faith. He says, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So the question, will you accept God's testimony or will you reject God's testimony is also a matter of destiny. Where will you spend eternity? Let me finish with this verse, 1 John 5. And John was one of Jesus' personal disciples, of course, as you, most of you probably know. But he says this, and this always sticks out in my mind when I'm thinking about these things and, and, and considering this area of witness and testimony. It's 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12. John, an eyewitness of Jesus, wrote this little letter, and he says in it, and this is the testimony, the witness that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Hallelujah. So God's testimony to the world is it his testimony to you? Have you received this testimony? What I love about the Bible so much is that no one is excluded. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If anyone thirsts, let him drink. If anyone hungers, let him eat. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, will never thirst again. So let's receive the witness of God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the way, turns out in the, old, in the book of Revelation is the faithful and true witness. So he's the ultimate witness. So do you believe in Jesus? Let's go and live for Jesus today. And if you don't believe in Jesus, call upon his name. He is a merciful, he's a compassionate, he loves, he's willing to love you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, it's great to be here today in your presence, Jesus, with your Father and the Holy Spirit. Oh, God, help us to trust you and follow you. 
We know we live in a world that contests these things, opposes these things, questions these things, and, and that's okay, Lord. You've given us answers. You've given us strength. Help us, Lord, now to speak for you, to live for you, but help us, each of us, to be personally faithful to you, not just talk like we believe, but may we live out our faith day by day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let me ask you to stand. We'll be dismissed with God's parting blessing. Peace to you and love with faith from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity.